Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoy today's featured message. Okay, how many of you are familiar with the OSHA rule about 10 or fewer employees? So that means that you can never have an OSHA inspection, right? Wrong. That's a record-keeping rule. If you have one employee, OSHA can come knocking on your door unless you're in one of the industries that somebody else takes care of, of safety. Like if you're in mining, it's MSHA instead of OSHA. If, you're in, if you fly airplanes, it's the FAA. If you're the railroad, it's the Railroad Administration. But just about everybody in this room, except for the public employers, can have OSHA come knocking on the door anytime. For the public employers, you might want to pay attention anyway, because a lot of you are on boards of other organizations that, that are covered by OSHA. Like I'm a trustee at this building, the Elks Lodge, and we could have an OSHA inspector walk in anytime because we have employees here. So we're going to spend whatever amount of time we have talking about how to prepare for and how to react to an OSHA visit. OSHA visits are never fun, but they can be less painful. I was a safety manager at the largest steel plant, largest flat rolled steel plant in North America. So we were on a first name basis with all the, the OSHA people in Cleveland. We had five local unions and especially at contract time. They, they love to call OSHA. So here's what we're going to do today real quickly. I'll talk about uh, some preparation before the inspection. When the inspector arrives, the opening conference, the walk-around inspection, the closing conference, and then what? And if we have any time at the end, there's a couple other uh, nice-to-know slides I have that uh, if we don't get to them, it's not a big deal. But if we do, we'll talk about it. So long before, of course, you don't know when they're going to show up, right? OSHA doesn't make an appointment. In fact, it's illegal for any federal employee to let you know when OSHA's coming to you. If you've got a brother-in-law that works for OSHA and you get a telephone call from them saying, hey, OSHA's on their way to inspect your workplace, and that person gets caught, there's a very heavy civil penalty that they'll pay and they'll lose their job. So you never get advance notice of an inspection unless it's something that you've arranged for. If you've asked them to come in like for VPP or something like that, that's different. But beforehand, you need to do some prep work. You need to decide who's going to participate when OSHA shows up. You need to appoint primary members of management and backup members of management who will be there representing the company during an inspection. The owner might not be the best person to do that. The safety rep might not be the best person to do that. You have to decide who has the temperament and the knowledge and the authority to represent the company during an OSHA inspection. You want to train all your employees how to react when OSHA knocks on the door, because that's the first notice you're going to have. They're going to show up at the receptionist or the front door, ring the bell, pick up the phone in the lobby, whatever, and say, I'm from the government and I'm not here to help you. You need to make sure that whoever's going to be at that desk or whoever's going to answer that phone or answer the bell knows how to react and what to do when that day comes. 
So what should they do? OSHA knocks on the door. The first thing they should do after saying hello is notify the appropriate people, the people that you've appointed to be the company representatives during the inspection. They should offer the inspector a seat right there in the lobby or out on the lawn or wherever, but not inside the plant. You know, you stay right here. We're gathering up the people that you need to talk to. You don't allow them to leave the waiting area. If they need to sign in, if they need to be badged, you take care of that stuff, but you don't let them start wandering through the offices and, and, and whatever. Offer them a seat, but most important, be nice. You're not going to be particularly thrilled when OSHA shows up. It's going to ruin your day. Might ruin your week. Depends on what they're there for. The longest OSHA inspection we had during my time at the steel mill was three weeks. They brought in trailers and everything to, to do industrial hygiene sampling at our coke plant, which was about to be closed anyway, so it was kind of a, kind of a waste. Uh, that, that, that's a war story, I'll tell you, if you're interested after the meeting. But, but they're human beings. Most of them are pretty nice people, if you're out having a beer or whatever, and they're reasonable people. They don't want to be there. I mean, it's their job to be there. You're not their only stop for that day, probably. They've got a big list of places that need to be visited. So they're not all that interested in spending a whole lot of time with you, but they will. If your neighbor complains about the length of your grass, do you react really well about that? I let it grow. when Every ocean inspector is a human being. So the nicer you are to them, even if they're grumpy, the better off you're going to be. While you're waiting for the appointed people to show up, and while the opening conference is going on, the people out in the plant ought to be really busy making sure that there's no, no safety issues that have been missed during the, the morning inspection or, or however you guys maintain your housekeeping and stuff like that. You know, quickly look for 4 by 4s laying in the aisleway, looking for extinguishers sitting on the floor instead of hanging on the wall for extension cords that, that ought not to be there. Any machinery that's out of service that's not locked out. Yeah, the rule is that it has to be locked out when somebody's working on it, but you don't want to get in that fight. If it's out of service, lock it out. The OSHA log posted from February through April, as it's supposed to be. The inspector knows you're doing that. The inspector knows you're stalling for a little bit of time when you're doing that. They expect you to do that. So do the best you can to get things in order when OSHA shows up. If you're a really good employer, you won't have to do much because you do that every day. But somebody's going to leave a mess somewhere. Clean it up. When the manager's ready to begin, and OSHA's not going to sit for five hours while you take care of the place. But they'll be patient. They'll give you a half hour, 45 minutes to gather up your team. They know you're running a mill or you're, you're, you've, you've got things that are going on that you may have to, to put on hold to, to get to the opening meeting and get to the inspection. So they'll give you some time. When the manager's ready, when the management representatives are ready, greet the OSHA inspector, friendly, be nice. Then ask him for identification. They should be able to provide a federal identification card with their picture on it. If they can't, they might not be an OSHA inspector. 
you can tell them that you, you want further evidence. If you're not sure what they are, call the OSHA office. They're not mad about that. They're okay with you checking to make sure that it's their people that are there. Because there are industrial spies out there, aren't there? We're worried about cybersecurity and all that stuff. There's folks out there pretending that they're EPA inspectors or OSHA inspectors or whatever, coming in just so they can nose around and take some pictures of your process and sell them to your competitor. Once you're sure who they are, then escort them to the room where the opening conference is going to be and give them a seat. The opening conference doesn't have to be in your fancy conference room that's way inside the plant. The opening conference can be on the sidewalk. It doesn't matter. At this point, you're not taking them into the plant. You're not taking them into all the offices. You're not parading them through. Because the ocean inspectors are like police. Anything in plain view is sightable. So let's keep them kind of corralled at first until we find out why they're there, because we haven't even found that out yet. During the opening conference, that's when you'll find out why they're there. You want to take lots of notes. I suggest having a separate member of management whose job is to do nothing but write and keep their mouth shut. Anything the OSHA inspector says, anything anybody else says, gets written down. If, if OSHA writes something down, you should write down the same thing. You want to know everything that they know. You want to limit participation in that opening conference. You only want the people there that you need and that are required by law to be there. We'll talk about who that is here in a second. In fact, that's the next bullet point. One of the people that has to be there is an employee representative. If you've got a union, the union and OSHA will decide who that employee representative is. They may want to have 10 employee representatives. The employer has the right to contest that right on the spot. Now, we don't need a parade. We don't need to take all these people off the job. We want one employee representative. You might end up with two, but you don't have to have a, a, a cast of thousands. Nothing good happens if you've got too many people in this group. If you don't have a union, then the employer and the OSHA inspector will decide how to choose that employee representative, who should be along to represent the employees. They won't tell you, hey, Joe Smith made this complaint, so let's have him along for the inspection, because it's against the law for them to tell you who made the complaint. The next thing out of your mouth is, why are you here? What brought you here? It might have been an employee complaint. It might be a programmed inspection. You might be on some list of industries where every plant is going to be inspected uh, during the year. If it's a programmed inspection, yeah, they're going to probably spend more time there than if it's a complaint. If it's a complaint, then the next thing is to ask the scope of the inspection. What was the complaint about? And write that down. Then the next thing out of your mouth is, will you please limit the scope of the inspection to the subject of the complaint. And they'll almost always say, sure, because they only want to look at what brought them there. They don't want to go wall to wall and take the tourists tour your factory. They just want to look at what brought them there. Either, yes, there's a problem, or no, there's not. Thank you. Here's your fine. Here's your sign. Goodbye. So ask them to limit the inspection to the area of the complaint. They'll almost always do that if it's indeed because of a complaint. During the 
opening conference and before going into the plant, unless OSHA is a frequent flyer at your place, they'll do a paperwork check. They'll want to see things like your HAZCOM training, your current OSHA log and logs for the last five years, other training records, air and noise sampling records, maybe. They won't always ask for all this stuff, but the, they, they may have a checklist. If you can provide it to them on the spot, great. If not, they'll give you a reasonable amount of time to produce it. They'll probably want it by the end of the day or maybe, maybe the next day. If they ask for strange things, they have the right to see employee exposure records, the air and noise sampling. They have the right to see your uh, OSHA log. They have the right to see your training records. If they ask for other things out of personnel files and stuff like that, tell them, okay, we're going to talk to our legal advisor first. And then if we're allowed to, that person will decide whether, whether you get access to that. Don't get in a urinating contest. Just be nice and tell them, you know, our, our legal advisor will, will uh, let you know if you can have those. Then comes the walk-around inspection. Carefully pick the route you're going to take to the area of the complaint. You don't have to parade them through the whole factory. If the complaint is that we have open electrical equipment, that employees are, are subject to electrocution, back in that corner electrical closet, we'll call that. I don't have to walk them through here and straight back there. We'll go outside. We'll go outside and walk. 500 or 1,000 feet down the outside of the building and go in the closest door. They're less likely to find things in plain view that you missed during your safety inspection that they can write down. You don't have to parade them through the plant. Carefully choose your route. If it means putting them in a car or on a golf cart or whatever and hauling them there, that's fine. They know exactly what you're doing and they're okay with that. They don't want to look at your whole place. But if you walk them through, they have to. You don't have to take the most direct route. Everything in plain view is subject to citation. Who should participate in the walk-around inspection? Obviously, the management representative who you chose in advance, so it's not a surprise to them. A second management representative for taking notes. The selected employee representative, the union rep or the person that you chose along with OSHA. And I suggest a maintenance person, or maybe two, a mechanic and electrician, so that if they do find something, and it's an easy fix, you can fix it right there. Oh, we're missing a cover on this switch box, and it's laying right there. The guy that was working on that forgot to put it back. Bam, 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 we'll put it up. Abated during inspection looks really good on a report. That doesn't mean you're not going to get cited for it, but it might change your fine from $2,000 to $20. They understand that sometimes you miss things. If you can fix them during the, during the inspection, uh, that looks really good. What do you take along? This is logical. You take a camera or your phone. You can use that as a tape recorder too. Uh, the inspector will take photos of violations. They have the right. You can't stop them. Trade secrets be damned. They'll sign a form that says that they're not allowed to disclose your trade secrets. When the case is over, they'll return photos to you if you want, but you can't stop them from taking pictures. So whatever they take a picture of, you take a picture of. If you're not sure 
what they took a picture of, ask them. They'll tell you. A notepad, obviously. As the inspector's writing things down, you ask them, ah, what did you see? And you take those same notes. You want to know everything that they know. Tape measure, flashlight, tools to fix things. Things like that should go along with you. By the way, backing up to the beginning, this is the United States, and we still have a constitution, and you absolutely have the right to refuse entry to an OSHA inspector. When they knock on the door, you absolutely have the right to tell them, no, you can't come in without a search warrant, because what they're doing is a search. What they're doing is a search, and, and you have the right to do that. So you do that. What happens next? They'll be back in an hour with a search warrant and half a dozen of their friends. Maybe a trailer. So, you know, if, I mean, if you really have some concern that you don't want them in and you want them to come back with a search warrant, that's fine. But the federal judges are just sitting there waiting. They'll be happy to, you know, there's probable cause because they had a complaint. Somebody complained that there's a safety violation and so said they've got probable cause. So they had no problem getting search warrants. And then they'll be mad. Be nice. If the complaint was about employee exposures to chemicals or dust or noise, uh, or if the inspector notices something while they're in the plant that causes them to want to do so, they may want to arrange for air sampling or noise sampling. Unless the original complaint was for that, the person that's with you from OSHA is probably not going to be an industrial hygienist and probably not be equipped to do air and noise sampling that day. So they may actually make an appointment for that. You know, we'll be back in a week to take these samples. If they do that, you want to arrange for your own industrial hygiene consultant to follow along and take the identical samples. If they're putting noise dosimeters on people, you want to do the same thing on the similar occupation or even on the same person. If they're putting pumps on to, to test for uh, air contamination, you want to take the same tests. You don't need to volunteer any previous records. If they ask for them, you may eventually have to produce them. You may want to produce them. If you did industrial hygiene sampling six months ago on this very job that they're talking about, and it showed that there was no overexposure, yeah, you may want to produce that. But you don't have to, at least not at this point. If they want that stuff, they'll, they'll come after it later. You want to take really good notes and photos. What brand of sampling equipment are they using? What model number? How did they put it on the employee? You know, if, if you're doing air sampling for contamination, the nozzle, if you will, the hose, is supposed to be in the breathing zone. If they put it on the back or down on the belt or whatever, and now you've got evidence that the, that the sampling wasn't done right. That doesn't happen very often, but you want those pictures. If they connect people to sampling equipment, then you get a member of management to stay there all day to make sure that nobody's playing with that sampling equipment. Oh, yeah, let's take this hose and stuff it in the ashtray. Or I wonder what this blue thing in the toilet is. I wonder what it'll do to this. You don't need people tampering with the, with the equipment. So have somebody there to monitor the employees to make sure they're wearing it consistently. Some key points to remember, and these all boil down, a lot of them do, to the be nice thing. 
listen instead of talking. Only one person should be doing the talking. That kind of comes with the, what we said at the beginning, wisely choose the members of management that are going to be there. You can't shut up the employee representative, but you can control the management representative. Only one person should be doing the talking. Listen more than you talk. You don't have to explain how anything works. Oh, can you tell me how this machine works? No. Eh, that's their job, not your job. So the more you talk, the more you're going to trigger questions in their mind. Oh, well, what happens? Oh, shouldn't there be a guard on this? It's not your job to explain to them how to do their job. That's not being mean. That's just being frugal is not the right word, but careful. You don't have to start up any equipment that's not running. Ah, uh, you came to look at this piece of equipment. It's not running today. Sorry. Well, can you start it up? No. Sorry, can't. They may want to come back when it is running. That's fine. They have the right to do that. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know, or I'll have to look that up. I'll get back to you. Whatever. If you don't know the answer to a question, don't make one up. Nothing good can happen. If you don't know the answer to a question, keep your mouth shut. Just say, I don't know. I wouldn't even say, I'll look it up and get back to you. I'd just say, I don't know. If they want you to look it up and get back to them, they'll tell you that. Any of you ever been pulled over by the police? Any of you have a good experience with that? Any of you shoot off your mouth to the cops when they pulled you over? Yeah, don't raise your hand. But if you did, what would you expect to happen? Yeah. Or, or, or if the cop asks you, do you have anything in the car that I should know about? And you say, oh, yeah, there's a big bag of dope in the trunk or a body or whatever. Keep your mouth shut. Few words. If an alleged violation is found and the inspector doesn't cite you, the inspector makes suggestions to the area director. The citation will come from the area director. The, but the inspector can tell you what he's going to propose to the area director. Okay, I, I see this violation here, and I'm going to write that on my report and suggest a citation for this. You ask them, how can we fix that? Because if there's no fix for it, they're likely not able to cite you for it. That's kind of rare, but while they're there, what do you expect us to do to fix this? If nothing else, you may have a $50,000 solution in mind, and they may have a $10 solution. That, that'll work for them, and that's better for you. Even if you've got somebody's detached hand hanging on a machine, you've got bodies all over the place, don't admit a violation. When the cop stops you and says, do you know how fast you were going? What do you always say? Uh-oh, you know how fast you're going, but you're not going to tell him, yeah, I was going 120, I thought the sun would go 125, Never admit a violation. Don't argue. Just take good notes. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's tough. When we had a, an inspection at the blast furnaces, uh, the, we actually had decommissioned, and the union was mad at us, so they, they called in an uh, industrial hygienist, and she wasn't a pleasant lady. Yes, that one. And, and, and she was more leaning toward the union and getting them what they wanted, and that's okay. But it was really hard not to shoot off my mouth to her. Nothing good comes of that. So don't argue. Just take really good notes. 
If you think that the inspector is full of crap, don't say that. Just take good notes, and you'll have a chance to say that to the area director. The inspector doesn't have a right to your notes or your photos or any of your stuff like that. So they probably won't ask for it, but if they do, no, sorry, can't have my notes. The inspector has the right to interview employees. What the inspector doesn't have the right to do is interfere with your operation. You have to make employees available to be interviewed on your time, but you don't have to take them off the job. You can arrange for it after shift change, tomorrow morning, whenever is mutually agreeable with, with OSHA and that employee. But you don't have to shut down your plant to accommodate employee interviews. The interviews are private. Remember, OSHA is in the Department of Labor, not the Department of Commerce. So the employee representative, the union or the selected uh, person to be the employee representative, has the right to be in the employee interviews. Management does not. Sorry, I didn't like it either, but that's the way it is. You're certainly allowed to ask the employee after the interview, yeah, what did they want to know? What did you tell them? But you can't beat them up if they don't tell you. If they want to volunteer information, that's fine. Interviews are not only private, but they're also voluntary. An employee can say, no, I don't want to be interviewed, and just move on. Don't forget that it's not just hourly people that are employees. We're all employees. So they may want to interview your turn supervisor or your general foreman or whatever. They're employees. After all that fun, there will be a closing conference. If it was a simple inspection, you know, hey, we're here to look at the electrical box and the electrical closet, bam, there it is. Yeah, it wasn't on there. We replaced it. We're done. We go back outside. We go back to the conference room. You may have the closing conference right then. If it's more involved or if they need to go back and research the standards or something like that, then they may schedule the closing conference to be a couple days later, a couple weeks later. You know, in the case of our three-week deal at the Coke plant, it was a couple months later. But there will be a closing conference. The same folks who were in the opening conference probably need to be in the closing conference. They're the ones that have the all the background. During the closing conference, they'll tell you what they found. They may have already told you as you were walking around, but they'll give you the official version. Here's what we saw. Here's what I think I'm going to propose to the area director to be cited. Here's maybe how you can correct some of these things. And here's how much time I, the inspector, am going to suggest to the area director you have time to fix it. Some things might require buying equipment that comes from overseas. You might not be able to completely abate something for six months. Something simple, they might only give you a week. Some things you may have abated during the inspection, and that's a good thing. But they'll, t they'll tell you what they're going to suggest as the time frame for correcting all these still alleged violations. Again, don't admit a violation, but suggest to the inspector if you'd like to have more time to abate something, oh yeah, you're going to give me two months to abate a guarding issue on this great big machine, but all the parts have to come from Czechoslovakia. You know, I need six months. Maybe they'll do that. Maybe they won't. You'll have another chance to negotiate that. But if you need 
more abatement time, don't be afraid to say so. And be nice. This is the last time you're going to see this person for a while, I hope. So be nice. What happens next? That person goes back to the area director. And depending on the complexity of the case, it might be a few days. It might be a month or more. You'll get a citation. It'll come to you by registered. You got a sign for it. So they know you got it. And once you've signed for that, the clock starts ticking for your appeal. No matter how simple the citation, no matter how cheap the proposed fine is, you're going to start the appeal process. Because what you don't want is for them to come back in six months and say, hey, we cited you for this in July, and now here we are in January, and we found the same thing. That's a repeat violation, and the, the fines for repeat violations are astronomical. So you, you, you want to have the meetings and the appeal. And you, and you have 15 days to file that formal appeal in writing with the area director. The area director sits in Cleveland, in our case. Within that 15 days, and probably at the same time that you file the appeal, which should be within a day or so after you get the citation, you're also going to ask for an informal conference with the area director. These aren't as productive as they used to be. Ten years ago, if, if you had a formal conference with the area director and you were nice and you showed him that you were acting in good faith and that the violations were you know, not intentional but you know, just things that you missed, you could get your uh, proposed penalties reduced to practically nothing. The last presidential administration changed that so they only have the right to, to reduce things 25%. Uh, off the bat, but still, that's twenty five percent. Twenty five percent of ten grand is uh, you know, not pocket change, and it can be a lot more than ten grand. So you discuss the citation with the area director. You say, we don't think that this is a violation, and here's why. Or we don't think it's a serious violation. We think it's less than serious because that machine seldom runs, or whatever. You negotiate the elements of the citation and. The price. He'll start off with a 25% reduction probably just because you showed up and you're acting in good faith, and then you negotiate from there. If you look on the OSHA website, you'll see that a lot of times the proposed penalty was $150,000. The final settlement was $1,500. There's a lot of negotiation that goes on. So you want this to happen. You want to go to that informal conference. If you're satisfied with the results of the informal conference, you go home, write a check, you're done. If you're not satisfied and you've met the 15 days, you can then appeal to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. And if that doesn't work, you can appeal to federal court. Very few cases go to the Review Commission. Even fewer go to federal court. Most of them are settled right in the area director's office. So how do we avoid OSHA visits to begin with? They're not pleasant. If, even if you're nice, and even if they're nice, it's a disruption, it's a check you're going to have to write, and it can be a lot of money. But remember, most OSHA visits are the result of employee complaints. Many of them, I have no statistic to prove this, but many of them, if not most, are employee complaints that were never brought to the attention of management. And OSHA actually asks that question when an employee files a complaint. Did you tell management about this? 
And sometimes OSHA won't show up. They'll call you and send you a fax and say, hey, we've got a complaint about this. Go see if it's true and fix it if it, if it is. But how do we minimize the possibility of employee complaints? Be nice. Be nice. If you're like some companies and you take great pleasure at jabbing at the union and treating employees like dirt and working them to death and we pay them to be here, we pay them to work, I don't have to be nice to these people, well then guess what you're going to get, especially at union contract time when they're all mad at you anyway. So be nice to people and you may find that you get fewer OSHA complaints or you get more people coming to you saying, we have this safety issue, what can we do about it? Rather than just dropping the quarter in the phone and calling OSHA. Maintain the facility in good, clean condition. That kind of goes along with it. That not only increases safety and health, what else does it increase? Morale, which increases yield, quality, and productivity. Yes, and safety. Don't wait for an inspection, whether it's an OSHA inspection, or an internal inspection, or a BWC inspection, or some other insurance company, don't wait for an inspection to find safety issues. Don't let violations happen. You need everybody from the janitor to the president of the company saying, we don't let safety issues happen here. When we find them, we fix them. We don't engage in unsafe behaviors. People don't, people don't get hurt here. It's unacceptable for that kind of thing to happen. Fix the ones that slip through when you do find them. Don't put them on a list. Yeah, some things may need capital expenditures, some things may need parts, but you can make temporary improvements before you do the final abatement. Culture of trust, treat the employees well. I guess that's what I brought up first because that hits close to home. Be nice. Empower the employees to fix things or have them fixed rather than just turning them in. How many of you have a safety committee? How many of you have a safety committee that meets every month, talks about what was on last month's list, and then makes another big honking list, and then turns it into maintenance and leaves. That's the way a lot of them work. Putting crap on a list doesn't do anything. But, but, but if, I, if I work on this machine, and I've got a safety issue, I've got a guard that's broken, or I've got an electrical issue that's a, a shock hazard or something like that, why can't I go to the electrician or go to the millwright and say, we need to fix this? Well, because you have to fill out a, a work order, and it has to go through our system. And, but, why can't we fix simple things? Why can't the employees be empowered? My guys, the last job I had at the Cleveland Works wasn't safety. It was running a water treatment plant. And my guys knew my passwords, so they wrote their own work orders. Nobody downtown knew that. But why did they need to find me? They, if they found something on Saturday morning, why did they have to wait till Monday to get buy a part or get something fixed? They did it themselves. So how many injuries did I have? None. How many times did the Cuyahoga River burn during my watch? None. We're shifting gears here just a second because we have a little bit of time. Just to remind you of some of the record keeping and reporting stuff, and we've reviewed this before, but remember, if you do have something terrible happen and somebody gets seriously injured or dies in your place, if it's a fatality, you have eight hours to report that to OSHA. You have to call them yourself eight hours. Any day of the week, any time of day, the clock starts to tick when you find out about it. If it's 2 o'clock on Sunday morning, they answer the phone. And if, if it's nine hours when you call them, you'll be writing a check. Well, what about 
if somebody has a heart attack? What about if this? What about if that? You can do a whole lot of what abouts. And if you guess wrong, you're going to be writing a check. We wrote a $35,000 check because a guy shot himself on a crane runway. We didn't call OSHA. We didn't have the coroner's report to prove that it was a suicide until two days later. So OSHA said, well, you didn't know it was a suicide within eight hours. You didn't call us. Here's your sign. 35 grand. We appealed that one clearly review commission and lost. The lawyers made a lot of money too. A hospitalization, one single person gets admitted to the hospital. You have to call OSHA within 24 hours. That's admitted to the hospital, not taken to the hospital. They go to the hospital and sit for two days in the emergency room, but they're never admitted. You don't have to report that. If they're admitted for treatment, you have to report that. You have 24 hours to report an amputation. OSHA defines amputation a little different than medical people do. As an EMT, if you've got your earlobe hanging, that's not an amputation to me. That's an avulsion. But to OSHA, that's an amputation. A lot of medical people say that it has to involve a bone to be an amputation. OSHA doesn't say that. So if somebody loses a piece of their body or has it almost taken off, drop the quarter in the phone and call them. Not going to hurt anything. Maybe they'll show up. Maybe they'll show up and want to see things, but maybe not. There's only about 600, I think the number is, OSHA inspectors throughout the United States. And God knows how many tens of thousands of workplaces. So they're not all that anxious to come and visit you. They only come when they have to. You've got 24 hours to report loss of an eye. Not loss of the sight of an eye. Not loss of the appearance of an eye. Loss of an eye. The eye comes out and bounces on the ground. If it's hanging, that eye's not lost. That's pretty gross, but that's their definition. The eye actually has to be out and detached. Then you have 24 hours to report. I don't know why they selected that. I don't think that happens that often, but they, they did that. Here's the 10 employee rule that, that I referred to before. Establishments with 10 or fewer employees are exempt from OSHA record keeping, but not from OSHA compliance. If you have one employee, you're required to comply with all the OSHA standards that apply to your industry. If you have any questions about your reporting standards, you should contact your company's legal representative. That's not me. Here's the new penalty structure. Uh, and actually, this is the 2018 penalty structure. I updated it this morning on my copy of the slides, but this is the one I gave to Mike a week or so ago. So these numbers are a little bit off. But in 2015, when they changed the standard, the, the uh, fines hadn't been increased for like 10 years. They went from $1,000 to $7,000 per violation for a serious, other than serious, or posting requirement. That's the maximum penalty, $7,000. In 2016 or 17, 16, I think, they increased the fines because $7,000 to a lot of companies is pocket money. That's petty cash. So they increased the fines and put in a cost of living raise for OSHA. So in 2018, that went from $7,000 to almost $13,000. Uh, in 2019, in January, they raised it again, cost of living raise, to almost $14,000. Failure to abate. You agree with OSHA, yep, we're going to write you a check, and we're going to abate these hazards, and we're going to do it by January the 18th. January the 30th, they haven't heard from you. They come in, you haven't done anything yet. You owe them 
12,000, well, 13,000 something now per day from the time you said it was going to be done until the time you do it. So make sure you negotiate your abatement date. And if it's coming close and you're not going to make it, call them. Let them know. They'll understand. Oh, we're waiting for parts. They won't understand. I don't want to spend the money. But they'll understand if you've got issues or conditions that are keeping you from, from getting it done. Willful or repeated violations. A willful violation is something that you knew happened. You knew existed. You know that that machine isn't guarded and it's supposed to be. And you know that you've got employees working there every day that could stick their hand in there. That's a willful violation. And maybe you've got safety committee notes that say, oh, this, sh this should have been fixed. And it never was. Or you've got employees that are interviewed that say, yeah, I told them about that 20 times in the past five years, and they just never do anything with it. That's a willful violation, and that's 130,000 bucks. A repeat violation, I mentioned that before. They came in, they cited you for this. They come back a year later, there it is again. You never fixed it, or you allowed it to get screwed up again. That's a repeat violation, 130,000 bucks. They have the right, although they seldom do this because it's hard for them to communicate. If, if they found something at our uh, steel mill in East Chicago, and they found the same thing at our steel mill a year later in Cleveland, they could cite us for a repeat violation because we should have known. They cited us for it in Indiana Harbor. Cleveland Works should have fixed the same thing. They seldom do that because the offices don't talk to each other very well, but they have the right to do that. OSHA.gov. The uh, website, it's actually user-friendly. You can get in there and see every OSHA citation, every OSHA inspection that's ever been done since OSHA was born in 1970. You can see what the proposed fines were and what the actual settlements were. Electronic reporting, you know you have to do that. That's been a while. The bottom line, maintain a safe and healthy workplace. Maintain a reasonably happy workforce. And be nice and your likelihood of OSHA knocking on the door goes down dramatically. If you do get an OSHA visit and you're resigned to being pleasant and helpful without giving the farm away, when OSHA shows up, your likelihood of having a terrible end result goes down dramatically. Nothing's good's gonna happen, but you can somewhat control how bad it is when OSHA shows up. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.